what if you were given the six rules of success from one of the most successful artists in the world? Buckle on up as the six rules are about to be served up on a silver platter. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast and get ready to be inspired, motivated, and achieve massive success. And now, your host, the Mayor of Motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest is a prolific, world-renowned artist with over 30,000 paintings under his belt. Wow. In 1982, he moved to New York City, and by 1984, he was already a prominent figure of the East Village art scene. He is most known for his paintings of faceless figures, which often comment on contemporary political, social, and psychological issues. His paintings are displayed all over the world. He has designed album covers, a swatch watch, and public works throughout Italy, where he divides his time between Rome and New York City. Welcome to the Motivation Show, Mark Costabi. Thank you, Eli. I feel motivated already. Well, uh, you know, Mark, it was really great to meet you a few weeks ago at my event in New York City, and I kind of feel like I developed a quick little bond with you. You're an easygoing guy. Or a guy that's put out 30,000 paintings, you know. You are a pretty cool, laid-back kind of guy. And so my first question, and probably I think a first question that a lot of people have asked you, is the obvious question. Why the faceless figures? What do they represent? I paint faceless figures to have a universal visual language, something that transcends racial and national barriers. People can read their own stories into it. Mm. And that explains why my work uh, resonates in so many different uh, cultures, not uh, from Japan to Turkey to Estonia, Germany, uh, certainly heavily in Italy and throughout the United States. So, Mark, what are you most concerned about in the world today in 2023 and that you are reflecting in your art? Oh, that's a good question. Not all of my art is political, although some of it is, and a lot of it does comment on human psychology and social issues. I've always echoed the influence of technology on uh, humanity. So uh, some of my paintings speak about the good and the bad of the iPhones and computers and and I. I'm positive, and I see technology as generally a good thing. Certainly, uh, the uh, the disaster in Ukraine has affected me profoundly, and uh, and I've reflected that in a delicate way in some of my recent paintings. Uh, hopefully, in a positive light. I'm I'm all for uh, the Ukrainians uh, to triumph and uh, and have and gain peace. And then uh, uh, now that I work with Park West Gallery. I see a lot more of the world. I go to places I would never have dreamed of uh, going to or never even have thought of going to, uh, like like Croatia, the Greek islands, and ports in the United States that, uh, you know, I've never been to Galveston before. And now I go to places like San Antonio and Galveston. and I go to Las Vegas a lot. And uh, it's just been a wonderful adventure, literally uh, sailing the world on gigantic cruise ships that are celebrating art and life and music. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> so, you know, I was I was curious, Mark, 
I am uh, the kind of guy that can barely draw stick figures. When did you first find out that you had this huge artistic talent? How did it all develop? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned stick figures because it was stick figures that led to my signature style that I'm well known for and that I'm financially successful for. Uh, but that happened uh, in 1980 when I was still an art student. Before that, I drew a lot as a little kid. At age six, I just loved drawing. And I must have been good at it because all my friends and family members and teachers told me I was, and they encouraged me, and they kept watching me while I was drawing. So I felt I had you know, command over people's behavior, uh, their eyes, and uh, all that positive encouragement. Also, I had great parents who were both artistic. Uh, they both played musical instruments. My mother was a piano teacher. Her father made musical instruments as well as playing them. And so I was never discouraged from uh, from being both a pianist, composer, and a painter. Uh, but the, the stick figure played a role. Long after I learned to go beyond the stick figure, I made realistic portraits. Uh, uh, and you can see some references to my figure painting here, uh, Italian architecture. Uh, but when I was in art school, I, I was taught that to succeed, you have to have a, of, an, of an identity, a visual identity. You have to kind of uh, get to know your artistic soul and have a unique voice. And I something made me conclude that you can truly be yourself and have your original voice if you do exactly what you love doing. And I was full of energy. So I would make all kinds of drawings, including scribble drawings and, and stick figures, uh, which was seemed like going backwards because I already could do realistic portraits. But I liked the energy in them. And people looked at them and they liked the stick figures. And so uh, I could see that they were communicating because of the poses, the dynamic poses and the energy. And little by little, because of the feedback I was getting from my audience, they evolved into what is now the classic classic Kastabi figure, the, the faceless uh, humanoid, or some people call it every man or every woman, because everyone seems to be able to relate to it. Then when I moved to New York in 1982, I went beyond the line drawings um, and started making paintings of what my uh, more evolved stick figures would look like if, as if they were sculptures. So I fell back on my knowledge of academic painting and, and uh, chiaroscuro and sfumato and made kind of realistic paintings of unrealistic scenes. If somebody today was offered $5 million starting out and they were told to do something they didn't love or they had a choice to forego the $5 million and do exactly what they love. Tell me what the choice would be and why. Well, my choice would be the latter. Uh, uh, first of all, $5 million, it's not that much anymore. <laughs> but uh, it, it's significant. It's significant, you know. But even if it was a billion dollars, uh, which is a significant sum, I would choose to forego the, the easy money and do exactly what I love doing, even if the payoff was minimal. Uh, even if I had to struggle, and you know, there's a cliche that artists start out struggling and gradually become either rich and famous, famous, or just peter out struggling. I didn't start out rich. I didn't start out poor. I started out kind of mi struggling, middle class, lower middle class, and and uh, but I've never struggled. I've always been happy, and I've uh, always felt free. And, uh, you know, I had regular jobs when I was a teenager for a while. Uh, you know, I was a janitor, uh, worked in a Pier 1 import store. 
these things lasted a few months. But most of my life, I was just being an artist, and I managed to start selling my drawings at age 18 or 19 when I was still an art student at Cal State Fullerton to Hollywood's top film producers and TV producers, people like Norman Lear, uh, Dan, Dan Melnick, Ray Stark, Billy Wilder, the famous uh, uh, film director, collected my work when I was still in art school, a teenager. And this was through a Molly Barnes gallery in, in Los Angeles. And my teachers were kind of jealous. They said, how did you get in there? Because they didn't, they didn't have galleries that represented them. But I was very ambitious, and I could see that my drawings were communicating. So I figured, you know, I'm, a, I'm as good as David Hockney. I, I'm going to go out and try to get me a gallery. It, it, it was kind of like a fairy tale the way I walked into the first gallery, Molly Barnes, and she embraced my work and started selling it to all these VIPs. But that was for very little money, like first few were $100 each. Now my drawings go for $10,000 each or more, um, and I'm getting record prices uh, on those cruise ships with Park West Gallery. They're, they sold a painting of mine for $180,000 not too long ago. Uh, often they go for over 100000 These are at auctions, so there's competitive bidding. Uh, and then I sold, I'm selling my larger sculptures for $300,000 each uh, successfully. So it's I've come a long way from my days growing up in Whittier, California, and, and attending Cal State Fullerton. But I still feel like I'm only beginning um, in a way, even though I'm 62 years old. I, I'm super excited about buying my new villa here in Rome, where I'll be hosting parties and residential concerts. Uh, frequently, the Park West Gallery will send 100 or 150 collectors to my house here in Rome, my, the current, my current apartment where we are right now. And we'll have a, uh, I'll give a little speech, I'll play some pianos, some original compositions, look at all the paintings, and then we'll go to dinner at a restaurant full of my paintings. And then the next morning, we'll all go on a cruise together. Uh, that's a very clever Tough way. Tough life. I like that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Good and reward I, for getting I, a painting. <laughs> and my life is like, like your background appears to be, you know. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> my background I mean, for those that like can't that. see it, you know, is uh, uh, palm well, trees I, and, and beautiful water. <laughs> palm trees, beautiful wa water, gentle breezes. Yep. I'm frequently in atmospheres like that. I'm about to go to Australia and the Fiji Islands. And uh, now the Park, Park West Gallery has opened up a bricks and mortar uh, uh, outfit in Soho in, in New York. Yeah, New York City, 411 West Broadway between Prince and Spring Streets, yes. And that is a legendary block. In the 80s, the, the whole international art world migrated to that block to visit the Leo Castelli Gallery, the Mary Boone Gallery, and Ileana Sonnenben Gallery, and numerous other important galleries. We were there all the time at the art openings. It was a wild scene. The 80s, 80s were a big art party. Uh, you'd see celebrities all the time, and major artists like Andy Warhol would, would always be out going to openings and art parties and at nightclubs like the Palladium, the Danceteria and Jean-Michel Basquiat and uh, all the top 80s artists would be there on that same block, which is coming back to life now, uh, thanks largely to Park West Gallery, because Soho stopped being the center of the international art world in the 90s. Uh, sometime in the 90s, they, they all migrated to Chelsea, which is where my townhouse is. And I, I hope you come to one of my parties there, uh, Eli, because... I'm, I'm there. Goes, yeah, you'll be invited. Can't wait. Well, I wanted to ask you, Mark, uh, I have a friend 
and he talks about that you have to have luck, right? So I'm looking to find out what your formula is for success. You know, how much part luck, how much part hard work, how much part, you know, collaboration, you know, what is the formula for Marcus Dobby for success? Okay, that's a good question. And, and I'm prepared to answer that. But first, let me respond to the luck thing, because um, I, I do feel lucky, but just to be alive and healthy, you know, because we're all lucky in that respect, because yeah. anything can happen uh, at any moment. But we're here, and we're able to talk and think and have uh, friendly dinners with, with each other, etc. That's kind of lucky. But, but I also believe that it, it's, and a lot of people say that it's part luck to succeed in the art world, but... I don't think that that I think that demeans the the decisive decisions uh, that we can make to make to quote unquote make our own luck or 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 increase the odds that something lucky is going to happen. Uh, that make like in playing chess, it's not one brilliant move; it's an accumulation of small advantages. And and uh, if you keep making these intelligent small advantage moves, it's possible that you'll get lucky and your mis opponent will make a blunder. And then you can go in for an immediate victory. Uh, that that's luck if someone makes a mistake that's in your favor. Um, but for me, it's been um, not hard work either. I'm not saying that you have to work hard to be successful, and I'm not saying you have to be lucky. I'm saying you have to follow the six rules of how to become a rich and famous artist. There we go. Yeah, and I've done a TED talk on this, and the rules are: number one, make great art. Number two, live in New York. Number three, circulate. Number four, be professional. Number five, and this is very important, have a story. And number six, get other people to work for you. Ooh, I like that. The big six. That's a book right the there. That's, that's not only yes, a book. That's I'm a documentary. On the book. There we go. I'm, I've done a TED Talk on it. Those will be the six chapters. I'm going to do the book. And it, it, it could, it's applicable to almost any career. Like, for artists, rule number two, live in New York, is unquestionably the easiest way to go. But, you know, if you want to be a, a, a big commercial actor, it would make more sense to live in Hollywood. Yeah. Or, or a country music star, it's probably a good idea to live in Nashville. Um, or, or wherever. You, you basically have to live where the opportunities are. Mm -hmm, I like and, that. And circulating is kind of universal in any, any career, basically networking going to all the parties and meeting the, the movers and shakers and uh, and then not only doing that, but behaving uh, in an appealing way. Like I met you at a party and here we are doing this, this podcast thing. And it wasn't only because we were both at the party, but we related to each other in a pr positive, productive way. Mm, uh, yes. Yeah. We didn't say the wrong things to each other. If we had, <laughs> maybe <laughs> that could happen next time. But right now we're going strong. So it's not only yeah. going there, but it's going there and and not being a jerk. You know, you got to uh, let the other person shine. Like right now, you're letting me shine because I'm being interviewed. But if we were if we were at lunch right now, I would be sure that that you talk as much as I do, so that there's an equilibrium. Yeah, it's wise counsel. And you know, and there was a uh, person who ran the Brooklyn Dodgers baseball team back in the 1950s. His name was Branch Rickey. And he's the guy that broke the color line. You know, he got uh, Jackie Robinson into baseball in 1947. And his definition of luck was a luck is a residue of design. 
How do you yes. like that definition? I right? love that. Yeah, I you know, totally you make, agree. Yeah. Resident exactly. design. That's that, beautiful. That's, it's not just dumb luck. You know, I mean, you have to put no. things into place. You have to put those six rules. You know, you do have to yeah. have some elbow grease. You know, you don't have to work seven days a week, but you do have to work and you have to work in the right place, as you say. Uh, and yeah. I was going to ask you the question before you answered it already. I was wondering why you moved uh, to New York from uh, uh, California back in uh, the early 80s. Um, and why do you actually think your career took off? so quickly in the East well, Village art scene of the day? Well, for some reason, I was really instilled with a uh, profound hunger for success, possibly because I, I am the son of, of immigrants who moved to uh, the United States, not speaking English very well at all at first. And uh, they, want, they came here after World War II to escape the Soviet Union and also to find the American dream. And I think they did because uh, they raised four kids uh, in Southern California uh, at a, in a beautiful neighborhood. So they had the dream, uh, but they didn't become multimillionaires. But uh, but I did, and I think I wanted to I wanted to like like uh, pr pursue their dream further. Mm. And I still often feel like I'm I'm trying to please my mother, uh, and I think that's a good thing because um, she was good to me created me so uh, I'm grateful and and I think about her and my father all the time and so I was like I had this burning desire to succeed fast instant gratification uh, was okay for me that's what I wanted not a lot of other artists that I went to art school with didn't have that and some of them never left and they just stayed there and they're unknown artists but they they're happy they have jobs in art supply stores or and they've raised kids and all that uh, but they didn't have the burning drive. Uh, one of my fellow students who was actually older than me, Fred Tomaselli, a good friend of mine, we went to art school together. He wasn't ready to move to New York when I did in 1982. And we talk on the phone all the time and it said, Fred, you got to come to New York. This is where it's happening. And he resisted and uh, kind of resented it. But finally he did it and he quit his job at the frame shop. Uh, and little by little, he became a huge success and his paintings uh, go for way more than mine now. They they go for uh, over a million dollars each. But I'm working on changing that. <laughs> on the, <laughs> so, and so I, the I, I'm having good progress. Take yeah, the plunge, no, I take the risk. My thing is quantity. I do so much. Yeah. He, he does like 20 paintings a year or something like that. I don't know. Uh, I do a lot more than 20 paintings a year, yeah. as you said. I to get 30, up to 30,000. <laughs> so I'm doing very well financially, and I'm having a lot of fun. But there are different ways of conquering uh, the art world in New York. Fred did it the slow and steady way and has an impeccable reputation. My reputation is controversial. You know, I've been I've been in the National Enquirer for getting in fights with television hosts. So you're <laughs> safe because you're, it's a Zoom call. I can't get in a physical fight with you like I did with Morton Downey Jr. back in the 80s. <laughs> I've been I mean, on the job. I think, I think Morton's show. got into a bunch of fights with a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was not a surprise. But that was cra crazy. He claimed I tried to tried to bite his thumb off. Oh boy. <laughs> and anyway, so I had a controversial reputation, uh, and uh, I've kind of matured now, uh, or at least created the illusion of maturity. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I have been referred to as the bad boy of the art world uh, more than one time. Uh, frequently in page six of the New York Post, where I've been appearing a lot lately, uh, thanks to my new uh, 
partnership with Park West Gallery, uh, and also thanks to our fabulous mutual friend, Steve Guerin. I got to tell you, you know, Mark, uh, Frank Sinatra said, you know, he, he did it my way, right? You know, sometimes you just got to do it your way and not worry yeah. about the critics. There's always going to be critics out there. There's always yeah. going to be somebody wanted to take, uh, you know, a, a pot shot at you. You know, that's just oh, life, yeah. right? Any, anytime you're in the public view, uh, there's always going to be the naysayer out there. But sounds to me like you're doing a lot right and uh, you're putting a lot of good out in the world. Uh, actually, what are you most proud of? Well, there are a few things. One of my proudest moments was in 1986, what I had the uh, ability and uh, the honor to invite my mother to New York and bring her to the Metropolitan Museum to see one of my giant paintings oh, hanging between Picasso and Cezanne and Van Gogh. That was a proud moment. Uh, oh, yeah. The painting is eight by six feet. It's in their permanent collection. It's called Requiem. And then I have, uh, I'm also very proud of having art in the permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Guggenheim, the Brooklyn Museum, the Corcoran, the Los Angeles Museum of Contemporary Art. Being from Los Angeles, that means something to me. And uh, Memphis Brooks Museum, they have a major Kostabi painting. And then museums all over Europe. And uh, I'm proud about all those things. And also I'm really proud to have had my music performed at Carnegie Hall uh, on three separate occasions uh, with more to come. So that's a major achievement. And uh, I, I guess I'm most proud to be alive, healthy, and have a lot of wonderful, fabulous friends. And I like to share the wealth. So I have I host a lot of parties, and I'm about to close the real estate deal here in Rome. I'm getting this big, fabulous villa surrounded by my own private garden. It's all gated off with a separate guest house and uh, three and a half stories or four stories. Um, and I'm gonna first thing I'm gonna move in there is my nine foot Hamburg Steinway piano, um, my drum set, some amplifiers, and and even before I move the furniture, and I'm gonna host a big party for all my wonderful friends. Uh, here in Rome, or my, and that might include a few of my American friends who are just passing through. Because living in Rome is not a living in isolation at all. It's it's all roads lead to road Rome in more ways than one. Because all my friends come and visit me here, and I'm hoping that um, Eli Marcus will be among them soon. I will f finally make my way to Rome because how can I resist the grand piano? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun in that party. Um, yeah. You know, what in intrigues me is you've had a lot of success in the art world. That goes without saying. You've uh, done something which most people haven't done, which you're also uh, in the music world having success. It's easy for a guy like you to just simply say at this point, why not just kick back in a hammock, go to Hawaii and just, you know, live off the fat of the land? You know, what still drives Mark Kostabi? Well, I would get bored if I was uh, on the beach full time. Uh, I enjoy like vegetating in the water a little bit, like one hour here, another hour there. But if I had to do that every day, I would go crazy. And I, I pride myself in never being bored uh, precisely because I avoid uh, those the easy life. Uh, not that my art life is hard; it's easy and fun. But it's also uh, it's also uh, like a chess game, or uh, I have to make lots and lots of decisions and keep everything going smooth and fast and afloat. Uh, it's just more interesting that way. Uh, and also, you know, Rome is a little more relaxing than New York. No one moves to New York to relax, and I don't think you move to Rome to relax either. But <laughs> the Italians have a certain quality of life where they 
have long lunches and long dinners and uh, breaks throughout the days. So it is a little more relaxing here, but I don't feel like I'm I'm on vacation here. I'm I'm working all the time, but it's fun work. The uh, so it doesn't feel like work. It feels like uh, winning at a game. So I uh, am a New Yorker, and uh, I have friends of all denominations and uh, economic uh, uh, statuses. And uh, I think the first question that a lot of them would probably ask me when I bring up your name is, uh, how much is the range of your paintings that they can expect uh, if they go down to Soho and visit the Park West Gallery? Good question. Okay, they're at that gallery at the moment. They have thirty-five of my original pieces, and I think there are some paintings on paper there that hover around six or seven thousand dollars, which is very low. Uh, and then small paintings on canvas are like, I think, ten and twelve thousand. Then when they get up to like eighteen by twenty-four inches, they're they're over that. They're more like fourteen or fifteen. Um, I'm not quoting exact prices. These are just so quasi. Uh, and then, then there's some that are more like 30,000 or 40. They don't have any of my giant paintings that go for 180, but the range down there is probably from around, uh, did, I, did I say uh, 8,000? Yeah, 8,000 to 30,000 roughly. But uh, th that gives you a good idea. But the best way to do it is just to go there and ask. Uh, or call there. Well, I'm not a salesperson for you and I'm not shilling for you, but I, my oh. instinct is when it comes to art is I don't see too many artistic paintings from people who are well known that go down. Uh, I don't think the Keith Herrings, you know, if you had bought his painting back when he was alive, uh, probably would have been a bad idea or Andy Warhol back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and so it seems like uh, paintings just keep going up and up and up. Isn't pretty much that the case with a well known artist? That is the case if there's a support system that continues to promote the artist. And in, in, in my case, I have all those museum collections, so it's kind of guaranteed. And also, a, a myth is that the artist's work goes up in value as soon as he or she dies. That's not true, generally. Usually, it's the opposite. Because uh, like a not-so-famous artist, when he or she dies, there's nobody around to promote it. Because the artist is often his or her greatest promoter. And so when he, he or she's gone, they don't, there's no one around there. But Andy Warhol had an army of dealers and supporters uh, promoting his work. So when he passed away, they didn't stop. So at first, his prices went down when he tragically died young at age 58 in 1987. They actually went down because people were flooding the market thinking now was the time to sell. And it went down. And then since then, they gradually rose. And now he sold paintings for over $100 million at auction. Um, Basquiat, I knew him personally, and I visited him in the studio one day in 1986, a year before he passed away approximately. And his studio was piled with artworks, just paintings everywhere. There was a desk that had what looked like 300 drawings just piled up, one on top of the other, all in disarray. And I was excited to meet him and be in his presence as a fellow artist, you know, wanting to experience the Basquiat mythology in person. That was enough for me, but I didn't have the mindset of an art collector, but I had the money. I could easily have bought some of those drawings and I'd have a few extra million today. I remember when Keith Haring was selling his line drawings for under a thousand dollars each. And I was sitting in his gallery, Tony Shafrazi gallery, talking with Tony and Keith walked in with a new stack of drawings. 
I said, okay. And Tony said, we sold it all the other ones. They're, now they're going to be $1,000 each. <laughs> These are the same drawings that now sell for uh, three hundred or 400000 or even half a million. Because uh, I know that for a fact because I brokered one for – I sold one for a dealer for $350,000 to an art dealer in, in Europe who immediately sold it for uh, $450,000. He made a $100,000 profit instantly. And that was the same kind of drawing that I would see in the 1982 selling for $1,000 each. Mark, when we talk about someone as iconic as Andy Warhol, right? Uh, first image, for some reason, that comes to my mind is the Studio 54 days with him hanging out there with Bianca Jagger and all the uh, stars of the day. You know, it, it's, a, it's a time that, you know, uh, just doesn't uh, exist any longer. Is part of that persona that he developed and the people he hung out with that sort of, uh, you know, uh, once in a lifetime sort of, uh, you know, uh, image that he created, is that part you think of his mystique and, and the price of his paintings or is it all just uh, his heart and, and his talent? Oh, no, no, no. He absolutely followed the six rules of how to become a rich and famous artist. And rule number three is circulate. And him going to Studio 54 with all those celebrities every night, that was like quintessential uh, networking uh, back in the 70s. Uh, so he totally understood those rules. He didn't break any of them. And some artists can actually succeed by only doing five of those rules. But the less of those rules you follow, the less likely uh, you'll succeed and the more hard, it, the harder it will be. Uh, so um, Andy... He had a story. He was very professional. I mean, he ran numerous businesses. You can't run a magazine, an art studio, a film studio. And he was a professional model with a modeling agent. Before he became a famous painter, he was one of New York's top illustrators. That re required a lot of professionalism. So he was he was no, like, uh, uh, out-of-control, uh, uh, asocial, bohemian nutcase. Uh, like some successful artists were but he was not he was very professional um and he uh he 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 certainly did uh, rule number six get other people to work for you uh, uh because he had the factory uh, the warhouse factory who was which was very prolific helping him produce to produce his art so uh, yeah it's not just it's not just the great work making great art is is, is rule number one for a reason uh, and if you make bad art and do all the other five rules, you can still be successful, but you probably won't go down in the history books. You might be a multimillionaire and have a lot of fun, but the good art is what will, will give you that, that historical significance, the great art. You know, let's land on rule number six, which I find pretty fascinating. You talk about getting other people to work for you. What does that do for you? Does that free you up? To be able to do what you do best, is that the most important part of that rule? Well, that is a part of it, yeah. Another important part is it allows you to satisfy the demand for your work. For example, uh, in 20th century art history, Marcel Duchamp is considered equally important as an artist as Pablo Picasso or Andy Warhol, and perhaps even more important. But he did not produce a lot of art. And so he doesn't have an army of art dealers out there promoting it. There's not much to sell. He got the, in the art history books and everyone learns about him. 
but he doesn't have a huge market. Nothing, nothing like the two barometers of the art market, which are Warhol and Picasso. If their art goes up, it means the market's doing well in general, uh, and vice versa. So, uh, yeah, there are numerous reasons that uh, that add to the value of art. But and and also, I should clarify uh, when I say get other people to work for you, uh, I'm not saying do what I did, which is have a big art studio with rows of art art assistants painting for me, and that got me on CNN and Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and all sorts of TV shows and People magazine, the cover of New York magazine. I'm not saying you have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, getting other people to work for you would be like uh, your friends talking enthusiastically about your work. Uh, Picasso, for example, he didn't have, except for one painting, uh, a big mural he did that was in the Four Seasons uh, Hotel at some point a few years ago. That was executed by assistants, and it's considered an original Picasso. But all his other paintings he painted by himself. Uh, he didn't need assistants to help him paint, but he certainly had people promoting him. Uh, his dealer, Conweiler, enlisted a whole platoon of other art dealers who Conweiler would give out a few Kostabi, a few Picassos here, a few Picassos there. I slipped by calling Picasso Kostabi for a second. A second. <laughs> I'm lucky to have a good artist's name, you know. Plus, we both seven letters: K O S T A B I P I C A S S O, something like that. Anyway, um, uh, yeah. So definitely have to. Uh, it's a teamwork. Uh, getting uh, media people to uh, embrace you, and and I throw a lot of parties, as I mentioned earlier, and I don't serve drinks in plastic. You know, I buy the best Riedel. Uh, champagne glasses and wine glass glasses, and I don't serve cheap wine. I, I serve real champagne, you know, with a capital C, and and I hire great caterers, and I hire the, uh, the the best New York jazz musicians to perform live, and nobody has to pay, so I had no trouble filling up a party, uh, and everyone has a good time, and so I spend a lot of money on these parties without expecting anything in return except having a good time for myself and for my friends. But inevitably, someone will buy a painting or two, and then the the expenses for the party are more than covered. So that's an example. Go ahead. You know, I love what you're just saying, because when you make people feel good, you don't have to sell them. They're already themselves sold because they're feeling good. They like you. They like the environment they're in, you know, and uh, let's face it, you know, uh, are people going to buy something when they're angry or are people going to buy things when they're having the best champagne <laughs> with great yeah. music in a great environment? Right. It's a great rule. Yeah. yeah. And uh, some of these people are shopping for art anyway, and I'm just making it easy for them because my house has in New York, I have five floors and every floor is floor to ceiling paintings, drawings and sculptures. So it's, it, it's a it's a no brainer, and then when Park West hosts parties at my uh, townhouse, the Park West Gallery, they do it here in Rome too. They'll bring in sometimes 160 collectors, and the same thing happens: all the champagne and the food. And but those guests are not close personal friends of mine. They're becoming friends of mine because I meet them on the cruise ships, etc. But they have to qualify for the invitation. They're they're invited. Only if they buy a certain number uh, of certain dollar amount of my of Kostabi art. Like one recently was, you have to buy fit. 
you have to have bought $50,000 worth of Mark Kostabi art, and then you'll be invited to the Kostabi experience at his townhouse in Chelsea, and they put the collectors up in a deluxe hotel and invite them out to a dinner at a restaurant, usually that's full of my work, like like some of Shelly Fireman's restaurants. There's a Red Eye Grill on the corner of 56th and 7th, and Trattoria del Monte. Uh, no, Trattoria, Trattoria del Arte with del the big Arte. nose in the window. Yeah. Yep. Right. <laughs> Bond 45. Nose. Yeah, in Square. And 45 and uh, Cafe Fiorello, across the street from Lincoln Center on Broadway. All these restaurants have Kostabi paintings in them. Thanks to Shelley Fireman, who owns them, who has become a very good friend of mine. And he bought a lot of my art. And I visit him here in Italy, too. He he loves Italy like I do. Makes his own art here in Pietra Santa, where I also cast sculptures. So, Mark, how do we find out more about you and how do we find out more about the Park West Gallery? Right, well, I have, websites. I, I'm very active on social media. I I have a, a Instagram uh, page and a Facebook page, and, and uh, I post my favorite latest work all the time, uh, every day usually, a painting or two. And so uh, Instagram will be Mark underscore Kastabi, and Facebook is just Mark Kastabi. Uh, there, there's more than one Marcus Dobby on Facebook, but I'm the one that has the detail of the Guns N' Roses Use Your Illusion painting behind my face. I uh, Oh, you mentioned in my intro that I did album covers. The, the people I did them for uh, are numerous, but the most famous are Guns N' Roses. I did Use Your Illusion number one and two, and both of those uh, together, they've sold over 36 million copies. They're about to perform here in Rome uh, in June. Can't wait. And also the the last Ramones album cover. Yeah, the boys uh, from Queens, where I grew up. Oh uh, yeah, you know that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I did Adios Amigos. Actually, that was uh, thanks to my brother Paul Castavi, who's also a painter and a musician who who shows and performs music also at Park West Gallery. And uh, he he uh, became very good friends with Joey Ramone uh, in the late eighties and and suggested to Joey that they use my painting on the, their cover. And I had done this painting of two dinosaurs wearing pointed hats, and uh, they Joey apparently didn't mind being referred to as a dinosaur, but he didn't want to be a dunce because it looked like a dunce hat to him. <laughs> so they changed them uh, digitally, or back then they didn't even have, a, uh, what you would call it, a, a Photoshop. But uh, they somehow changed the pointed hats into sombreros. Uh, and <laughs> that one I, uh, sells now for $500 a copy because it's out of print. And I had to buy a copy. I found a, a used one for $180. But brand new ones go for $500 a copy, unsigned by any of the Ramones or me. Then I've done a lot of jazz album covers and uh, other rock albums and my own album covers. Oh, you mentioned I did it my way earlier. My first album of my music uh, was on solo piano music, and I titled it "I Did It Steinway." Oh, <laughs> I like that. Thank <laughs> Great you. play on words. Well, I'm going to go down to the Park West Gallery, and I'm going to check out every single one of your paintings. Uh, so uh, I'm excited Great. about that. Uh, I'm going to be flying to Italy if you have a party. Give me a good excuse to get there. That's for sure. And I want to really thank you for sharing your wisdom today. I learned a lot from you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Eli. Eli Marcus, like your last name. <laughs>
You got it. Stay yeah, well. <laughs> Stay blessed. Okay. If you would like to inquire about having Eli motivate your team, speak at your event, or coach you personally for massive success, email the motivation show at gmail.com. That's the motivation show at gmail.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.